0: legitimate lies they're lies that affect us in huge ways right i mean last week when i asked you how many of you are stressed out and overwhelmed almost every one of you raised your hand at least at some time in your life you've been that way all of us were affected by this lie i can do it all and it'll affect us on a day-to-day basis but i want to share with you that this big lie we're going to talk about today is a lie that not only affects us on a day-to-day basis but it affects our eternity it's a lie that that drives every religious system in the world except for christianity it's the lie that constantly bombards us. And even as Christians so often, we struggle with this lie. And the fact is, as we talked about this a few weeks ago, as a lie believed as truth will affect you as if it were the truth. So it's not just that we act like, that, that it doesn't affect us, it affects us in a huge way. And the big lie is this. I was not going to tell you for a while, but I decided to tell you. The big lie is this. I can earn God's favor. I can earn God's favor. This is the big lie that Satan is constantly trying to tell us because he wants us to believe that. Now, the struggle for me this week was not finding scriptural, uh, Scripture that dealt with this because the whole of Scripture deals with this big lie. The problem for me this week was, was trying to narrow down the focus and find one passage of Scripture that would really really say to us and god really blessed a couple of weeks ago a number of us went to a conference uh, a conference in uh, called the leadership summit and one of the speakers was a guy named tim keller and tim keller's a pastor of a church in new york city a very scholarly guy a guy that you know uh, just just a, kind of a professor looking guy and he wrote a really just a, a tremendous book uh, recently called the prodigal god and in that book, he talks about the story that so often we mis- misconstrue, or we, we take out of, uh, I'm not out of context, but we kind of focus on the wrong thing in a story, uh, and that is what we call the story, it's in, it's in Luke chapter 15, and if you have your Bibles this morning, you might want to turn there. Luke chapter 15, there's, a, there's, some, there's some parables. And often we call this parable the parable of the prodigal son, but really that's not really what it should be called because if you look at the context of it and what it really says, it's the parable of two lost sons. Not just a prodigal son who was the wild, crazy guy, but another son, the elder brother, who had some issues himself. And so we're going to look at that this morning because I believe in more than, as well as any scripture, I could have used, uh, you know, I could have used a whole bunch of stuff, Philippians 3, Romans 3, I, I thought through all these different ones, I thought about focusing on those, but this morning I want to talk about uh, this, the big lie, and I want to reference that by just kind of talking about this story that so often we've heard, many of you know this part of the story, you may know most of the story, but I want to share with you some things that this we can study in this, and uh, not only studying scripture, but reading uh, Tim Keller's book and other other uh, Commentators, as well, some things that really stand out to me that really refute this lie because the Bible says, also in John chapter 8, not only is the devil a liar, but it says, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And what we need more than anything else in regard to this big lie is to know the truth and allow the truth to be part of our life because if not, we can be just as lost as the elder brother and just as lost as the younger brother was at the beginning of the story. So let's talk about it for a few moments. Now, if we, as we begin this story, in Luke 15, actually at the beginning of the chapter, it says this. It says, I uh, Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathered around to hear him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Now, actually, Jesus told them three parables. He talks about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and then he talks about the prodigal of the lost son, or the lost, two lost sons. And instead of us focusing on all three of these today, we just going to talk about the last one, the probably the most famous of the three parables, the one that's most, most talked about, and it's used, I believe correctly in many ways, but it's not always used, and I understand this, uh, or understood fully, because we t- so we'll often focus so much on the younger brother and not so much on the elder brother. And the elder brother is the one that more than anybody represents someone who believes in the big lie, the big lie that we can earn our way to God. Now, verse eleven. We're going to kind of start the parable there. We'll skip over the verses of the, which deal with the other two parables, and we're going to start there. It says this: Jesus continued, verse eleven of John, uh, Luke chapter fifteen. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, "Father, give me a share of the estate." Now, when we read that, we're going like, "Okay, what's the big deal?" Well, the big deal was if you're a father, and this guy was, I don't know how old he was. He was a teenager. He was in his 20s. We don't really know how old he was. The young man, it says. The younger brother decides that he wants now what he should have coming to him when the father dies. And when we understand the context of this, basically what this young man is saying, he's saying, Father, I wish you were dead so I could get what I want when you die but I want it now since you're not dead go ahead and give it to me now now even in our culture we understand this is a big uh no-no this is something we wouldn't do hopefully our child will never come to us and say to us I want what's mine even though they do that in various ways uh, many times in their lives but we're not talking about basically here in the culture that they were in in the Middle Eastern culture when what happened was when the father died the eldest son would get a double portion of what anybody else would get. Since there was two sons in this parable, basically the older son would get two-thirds of what what the father had. The younger son would get one-third of what the father had. And because of what this request is, if the father grants the request, basically what's going to happen is the father is going to have to do some things, going to liquidate some assets, because pretty much everything was tied up in property in that day. The younger son may have lived with his father, And the younger son uh, may have even obeyed his father. But the problem was he didn't love his father. He loved the things that his father had. And because of that, he wanted those things. uh, His heart was set on the wealth and on the comfort and on the freedom and on the status that wealth brings. His father was just a means to an end. Now, I say all of that to help us to understand the context of what the father replies you know, if I'd have been the father, I'd have said, no way, Jose. I'd have said, you just could have to wait a while, son. And I might not even said it that nicely. And you probably wouldn't need if your child came to you and basically said, I wish you were dead. Because that literally is what he was saying. But the father, in this story, in this parable, once again, it's a parable that tries to teach us a deeper truth about who God is. It says this in the last part of verse 12. This is what the father said. So he divided his property between them. <sighs> Unexpected. No one that was in this Middle Eastern sculpture would have understood it or would have believed that the father would have done that because basically what the father should have done is thrown his son out of the household because of his greed, because of his, of, of his disrespect. But that's not what the father does here. He divides his property between them likely the father i said had probably had to sell some of the land and owner and older to give his uh, younger son his share and it's reflected in a, an unusual greek word that's used there translated in verse 12 the word property it's the word that's uh that's translated bios which means life literally he divided his life between them his who he was because he had to tear apart the family in a real sense to do this to, it wasn't just a simple request. Like, I'll give you some money out of my checking account or my savings account. What I'm going to no. This was literally he had to basically destroy the family. The family name was destroyed because there was this huge disrespect, and it was so disrespectful for a person, a son, to do this for the father. And literally, his livelihood, his some of the property, he had to go out and sell that to give it to the son. So the father, instead of taking revenge and doing what he probably felt like he should do. The father kept the door open in the relationship, and the father was willing to suffer for the sins of the son uh, so that the day of reconciliation would be possible. That's what we see in the first part of the story. That's what we usually focus upon. And this is the next few verses talk about what the son does. Let's look at those real quickly. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this because I want to talk about the second son. But the verse 13 and following for the next few verses, verse 21, it says... After this happened, after the father divided his property, not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, all the stuff that the father had given him, and he set off to a far country. And there he squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired, he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. In verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. That's what he was thinking about here he was going to do. He set up his plan to go back and get in right relationship with his father who had said to him, Father, I wish you were dead. He realized the father probably would not be happy with him. And then in verse 20, he says, so he got up and he went to his father. And then there's an interesting word, but. Something changes in the scenario. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, something that never a Middle Eastern father would do. And that day, it was almost like you were the patriarch, the patriarch of the family. You would sit, you were almost like the king of the family. You never ran to meet your, your kids ran to you. That was a sign of respect. They had almost bowed to you in that culture. something that was unheard of in that day. It says, the father ran, uh, he ran to his son, he threw his arms around him, kissed him. Then the son said to him, he firstly followed the son's surprise. And he says, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no, no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father responds in verse 22. But the father said to his servants, quick Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now you've probably heard that story before if you've been to church more than uh, a year. And you probably heard me speak on it before, and that's probably what we spoke on was that part of the passage, because that teaches us a great truth. That first part about this younger son, we call the prodigal son so often, teaches us this lesson, that no matter how bad you have been, you can still have the Father's love. No matter where you've been, you can still have the Father's love. Now, for many of you today, I could stop right there, and that would be a great truth that would be so powerful in your life, to know that no matter where you've been, no matter what sin you've committed, no matter what you've done in life, you were not, you were not too far from the Father's love because the Father's love is not dependent upon what you do. But that's just half the story. And matter of fact, that's the easy part of us for the story for us to understand because all of us look at the, the, the younger son and say, oh, yeah, he messed up big time. He deserved to be rejected by the father, but the father loved him. And so we see that. But then there's a second son in the story. That's who we want to spend most of our time today talking about here for about the next 15, 20 minutes. We want to talk about the second son because the other son is somebody that so often it's misunderstood. And so often it's, it, it we really don't look at him too much. And the story is about two sons, both, though, who were alienated from the father. Not just the first son, but the second son, we see in the story, was alienated for the father. Both who were assaulting the unity of the family, and Jesus wants us to compare and contrast them. The younger son is lost. It's easy to see. But Jesus points out in this story that the older son is lost too. But for a totally different reason. A totally different reason. So let's read about that, and we're going to talk about it a little bit today. Verse 25, it says... Meanwhile, back home, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. Remember, the father, the younger son had just come home. They were having this big party there. That's what was going on. He heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Verse 27, your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. That was a big deal because in that day and age, uh, to do that meant it was, that was something that wasn't done very often. To kill the fatty calf means that you were having the, the biggest celebration of your life, basically. It's almost like a wedding f- a feast. You know, like we go nuts at weddings nowadays in our world today, right? We do. You know, we go, at, you, know, get, you get married and you have this big, big, big thing. Uh, you got to have a big, gigantic party. It's part of what we do in our culture. I don't say we have to, but we think we have to because we want to please people, which was two weeks ago's sermon. But the issue is, the issue is as we do that, this is kind of like a a wedding feast almost, it's a huge blowout party. And so the younger brother comes back and he replies, your father's killed the fatted calf, or the the servant replies, because he has him back safe and sound. And then verse 28, here's the, uh, the older brother's, the elder brother's response. The elder brother became angry. And he refused to go in. The elder brother who had stayed home all this time, who had been the good son, who had done everything right, he had done everything the father asked him to do, the, the son who was going to get two-thirds of the estate, the son who, who had obviously was basically just a good kid, he got angry and he refused to go to the party, this party that the father was throwing. He knew how important it was for the father. And so his father went out and pleaded with him. Once again, we see this father going out and taking action himself. He's not just waiting around for, for the, uh, like he did with the younger son. He went out and met him with the older son. He goes out and he meets him as well. And he begins to plead with him. And he says this. As, as the father pleaded with him, he says in verse 29, But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. I mean, you didn't give me a McDonald's Happy Meal. You know, I mean, you gave me nothing. I've done all these things right, and it's not fair. Because I've done it all right. You know, I deserve something. That was his attitude. But when this son of yours, by the way, this son who took took one-third of all all our possessions, and he took it off and it says what he did is he went out and he squandered your property with prostitutes, and then he comes home and you kill the fatted calf for him. What's going on? I don't understand it. As a matter of fact, I don't like it one bit. Then in verse thirty one. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The elder brother would have known that day when he saw saw what was going on that this was probably one of the best days of his father's life. This son who had rebelled, who had gone away, had come home, had changed. Things that happened in his life But the older son refused to go into this biggest feast of his life. It was a deliberate act of disrespect for the father. And the father had to go out and plead with him. Just as he went out to bring his alienated younger son in, he tried to go out and bring his elder son, alienated uh, elder son, in as well. Do you you realize what Jesus was saying by this, what he was saying when he was telling us this parable? when he was telling the Pharisees and the scribes the religious people and the, and the sinners, remember those two groups of people that was listening to this. You know what he was saying? He was saying the older son is lost. It had nothing to do with what he had done all those years. It had to do with why, why he did the things he did. You see, the father in this story represents God himself. And this feast represents salvation that we have to accept it go in and accept it and the younger son the immoral person who had gone off on his own way came to his senses it says and he came back and he went in and the father had a feast for him he accepted in a sense salvation but guess what happens this is that's the end of the story right there i just read does the older son ever do anything no he remains alienated from his father in spite of the fact that all these years he had done everything right. What's keeping the elder brother out? In verse 29 it says, All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed. The good son is not lost in spite of his behavior, but because of his good behavior. Now, absorb that a minute. He has bought into the big lie. The big lie says, I can earn God's favor. I can earn the father's favor by what I do. And why is the older son lost? Well, the younger brother wanted the father's wealth. Remember that? He wanted the father's wealth, but not the father. So how did he get it? He left home. He broke all the rules. But it becomes evident by the end of the story that the elder brother also wanted selfish control of the father but he just decided to do it a different way he thought that if i do everything the father wants me to do, check all the boxes make sure everything is correct that i can have what i want that the father will owe me that was his attitude you see while the younger brother got control by taking stuff and running away we see that the elder brother got controlled by staying home and being very good. At least he thought that was the way to do it. He felt now that he has the right to tell the father what to do with his possessions because he'd obeyed him perfectly. You see, there's two ways to be your own savior and lord. One way is to decide to do it your way. Just make up a way like the younger brother did. Go out and be wild and party. Just, just fancy free. Do anything you want to do. That's one way of being your own save your own director of your life but there's a second way as well and the second way the second way is thinking that if I can do, do so good that I can do all the good right things that God has to answer my prayers he has to give me he owes to me to give me a good life uh he has to take me to heaven And when that happens, what happens then is that then I will do all that I may be doing, looking to Jesus to be my helper and my rewarder, but he isn't my savior. I'm then my own savior because I'm doing it all myself because God owes me. That's the big lie of Scripture. That's not the big lie of Scripture. That's the big lie that Satan's telling us, and we have to understand that Scripture tells us something totally, totally different. See, the difference between a religious person and a true Christian, is that the religious person obeys God to get control over God and things from God. But the Christian obeys just to get God, just to have God, just to love and please Him and draw closer to Him. There's a different reason for our obedience. So the lesson from the elder son is this. No matter how good you have been, you cannot earn the father's love. That's the big lie. But how, because how good is good enough? You see, some people, I believe, are complete elder brothers. They go to church. Hear me. This is loving, okay? This is important. Because like I said, the lies that we talked about the last few weeks are not just about our everyday life. These lies are about eternity. But they do affect your everyday life. There are some people that complete elder brothers. They go to church, they obey the Bible, but out of an expectation that God owes them something. Because they've never really understood the biblical gospel at all. Many Christians, though, many Christians, though, who know the gospel often act like elder brothers. Because despite the fact that we know that the gospel, that the, the Bible teaches us, the good news is that Salvation is by grace. It's not something meaning something unmerited favor. It's not something you earn. We know that with our heads, our hearts go back to the elder brother default mode of self-salvation. You know, if I just do enough good things, God's going to answer my prayers. And we live life that way so often. What does the elder brother attitude look like? Let's go back to scripture, back to verse 28, and talk about this for just a minute before we wrap up here. A person who has an elder brother attitude, it says in verse 28, he became, the elder brother became what? Angry. Angry. Elder brother, when you have an elder brother attitude, anger is something that happens many, many times in your life. Elder brothers believe that God owes them a comfortable and good life if they try hard and live up to a certain amount of standards, whatever standards they may be. They say, my life ought to be really going well. And when it doesn't go well, guess what happens to someone with an elder brother attitude? They get angry. They get angry because... They deserve something from God. Well, the fact is, we're forgetting about Jesus. Now, did anybody on this earth ever live a more perfect life than Jesus? Uh, This is when you can respond. I I was at the back when Chris was talking, and I was back there, by the way. He said I wasn't here, but I was, and I was listening. Okay. Did did, did anybody live a more perfect life as far as obeying rules than Jesus? No. No. Did Jesus ever have any bad days? I can think of one or two. Something that you and I will probably never have to deal with, like crucifixion on a cross. Like being tried for, for doing, you know, for nothing he had done, being whipped and brutalized. If you saw the passion of the Christ, that's probably the fairly accurate depiction of what actually happened. I would consider that a bad day. See... Living the Christian life does not mean that every day is going to be a perfect day. And if you have an elder brother attitude that God owes you something, then when you do have a bad day, you will probably get angry. A second characteristic or attitude of an elder brother is in verse 29. He says this, he says, the the elder brother says to the father, I've been slaving for you. It's this joyless, joyless, mechanical obedience that people have. It's elder brothers obey God as a means to an end. As a way to get the things they really love. Of course, obedience to God is sometimes extremely hard, right? But elder brothers find obedience virtually joyless, mechanical, and they feel like they're a slave to it. It's kind of like I've heard people say, well, I'm suffering for Jesus. You ever heard a testimony about that? I've suffered for Jesus. I have. I've used that in quote, quote, and, you know, we use that as a jest sometimes. But the reality is, is the reality is so often we have this, certain people that have this elder brother attitude, they have this joyless, mechanical obedience. They just do the things, but they hate it. That's what this this elder brother had. Verse 30, it says, a third uh, attitude of elder brothers is this a coldness to younger brother types it says in verse 30 he says you ever said this to your spouse when you when your child has been disobedient your child you know it's not my child it's your child that did this right none of you've ever done that right <laughs> yeah i've said it before to my wife your child did this not my child well, this, this elder brother has this, and he says in verse 30, this son of yours, not my brother, this son of yours, he has this attitude. He has this older brother will not even own his brother because elder brothers are too disdainful of others unlike themselves to be effective in even wanting to reach them. See, it's, it's one of the greatest tools Satan uses to destroy our testimony because we become judgmental and critical when we're elder brother types. Elder brothers who pride themselves on their doctrinal and moral purity uh, unavoidably feel superior to those who do not have the things that they think they have. Number four, another elder brother attitude is a lack of assurance of the father's love. Verse 29, what what does the elder brother say? He says, Father, you've never thrown me a party. Do you really love me? Have you ever loved me? We start doubting the Father's love. As long as you're trying to earn your salvation by controlling God through through goodness, you will never be sure if you've been good enough. You understand that, how devastating that is? You will never know if you've been good enough. What are the signs of this? What are the signs of of this lack of assurance of the Father's love? Well, every time something goes wrong in your life, you wonder if it's punishment. Is God trying to get me? Or another sign is irresolvable guilt. You just feel guilty all the time about everything. You can't be sure that you've repented deeply enough, so you beat yourself over up over everything you do. Lastly, there is a lack of any sense of intimacy with God. You may have a great prayer life, but you do it mechanically, and there's no sense of closeness to God. You may go through all the motions. But there's no close uh, intimacy with what you're doing. A lack of assurance of the father's love is another sign of attitude of elder brother. And finally, an unforgiving and judgmental spirit. That's another attitude of, of elder brother. The elder brother does not want the father to forgive the younger brother because it is impossible to forgive someone if you feel like, I would never do that myself. Now we always do that with things that we would never do. But there's all we always—it's real easy to condemn a person for a sin that we have—we have no inclination to do, and all of us are inclined to sin, right? Yes, we are. Okay, but the issue is not all of us are inclined to the same sins all the time. Some sins, some things to do, are really easy for us to avoid, right? I would never do that. And the elder brother is one who constantly points out this whole thing about, well, I would never do that, so they feel superior to the person. Jesus ends the parable then with the lostness of the elder brother in order to get across the point that it is this is probably the more dangerous spiritual condition of the two. This inability to see that he is he's trying to work to the Father through his goodness versus this guy who just simply just chucked it all and did his own thing. The younger brother knew he was alienated from the father. But guess what? The elder brother did not. (sighs) See, if you tell moral religious people who are trying to be good, trying to obey the Bible uh, so God will bless them, that they are alienated from God, guess what they'll do? (laughs) They'll deny it. Because we believe Satan has sold us this big lie that, you know, man, if you do the right things, God will love you more. But that's not what Scripture says. Not just here, but throughout Scripture. Read Romans 3. Read Philippians 3. I mean, I could name dozens of Scripture passages that I've looked at the last couple of weeks in regard as tons and tons of Ephesians 4. Just read through these passages of Scripture because it says that that is not the way to God. You don't earn God's favor. God loves you just as much. He loved, you know, in both situations with the younger brother and the elder brother. He loved them. Equally, not based upon their behavior. Even though both of them did not love the Father for the right reasons. Both of them were self-motivated. Both of them wanted something from the Father, not the Father. You see, moralistic religion works on the principle, I obey, therefore God accepts me. But the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, works on the principle I am accepted by God through Jesus Christ, therefore I obey. Totally opposite extremes. These are two radically different, even opposite dynamics. You see, yet, <laughs> I got to say this, and, and I thought I, 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 Okay, say it, Bill. Um, These are two opposite dynamics, yet both sets of people, elder brothers and younger brothers, sit side-by-side in churches. They pray together, they go to church together, they may may act for the younger... Remember, the younger brother eventually followed Jesus Christ. I'm talking about in that scenario. Eventually followed followed the Father. He accepted the Father. The scenario here says that he accepted the Father's plan. He tried the other way, he, he lived a wild life, he did everything wrong, but then he accepted the Father's plan, and so he became reconciled to the Father. But the thing is, sometimes the two types of people, people who have moralistic religion, who say, I obey, therefore God accepts me, and, and the other people who believe in Jesus Christ and the gospel, I am accepted by God through Jesus Christ, therefore I obey. We sit by side in church, but we, and we do all the things we do, but for radically different reasons. And because of these, because we do these two things in, for radically different reasons, they produce radically different results, different kinds of character. One produces anger, joyless compliance, superiority, insecurity, and a condemning spirit. The other it slowly but inevitably produces contentment, joy, humility, poise, and a forgiving spirit. So the choice this morning is this for us. The choice that Scripture gives us is this, but leave the big lie like the elder brother. Believe the big lie like the elder brother. Keep trying to earn God's favor. And guess where you'll be up? You'll be like the moralistic religious person who will be angry and you'll be constantly just feel have no joy in your life. Because you can never, you can never earn God's favor. What is, how do you measure up? There's, there's no measurement. But Satan will keep telling you, you can do it. You can do it. And like the elder brother, I have to say this you remain lost. Or like the younger brother, you can accept the truth and let it set you free like it says in Scripture. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. John 8, 32. And in doing so, you can accept the forgiveness of the Father that cannot be earned. I love this quote. I don't know where it came from. But it says this about God. And about Jesus Christ. We were so sinful that he had to die for us. But we were so loved that he was glad to die for us. That's the picture of the father in this parable. He was willing to do what it took to to reconcile and keep the options open that you and I would have a relationship with God the father. It's not based upon how bad you've been or how good you've been. It's based upon the fact that you cannot earn God's favor. And if you believe that lie, you will constantly in your life, you'll just be messed up. How do you choose to believe? Do you believe God? I know it's hard to believe because every religious system in the world, except for Christianity, the gospel, is based upon this thing that I can earn God's, somebody's favor higher beings favor and people constantly are trying to do that through good works to see the reason as a christian you should do things that you obey god is is because you are you, you understand what god has done for you and you lovingly want to just obey him because of your love for him not to try to get anything from him but just to please the father it's a totally different way to live it's a totally freeing way to live Thank you for listening to Great Oaks Community Church's weekly podcast. For more series and podcast information, go to greatoakscc.org.